0: This is a hard sermon for me and my spirit is heavy um as we look at this text and as I looked at this text throughout the week and um you know usually I have a good idea of what what um what I'm going to preach and what I'm, I'm going to say and I do now but usually it happens earlier in the week and and all the way until even yesterday, the Lord was just um, convicting me and uh, using this passage to um, to call me to repentance uh, just just for the ways that that I turn to myself and and not not to jesus uh, and so as as we go into this text, I want you to look for Jesus. Um, first and foremost, um, before you look for advice or pointers or steps, look for Jesus, um, and, and you'll find him. And, and so with that, we've, we've got a lot to cover, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Spirit of God, open our hearts. Let us see your words. Let us be moved by them. And let us love Jesus. In his name, amen. Uh, today we're in Acts 19. Uh, And just so you you kind of get an idea of what's been going through my mind throughout the week and how I've been trying to frame the sermon, there's really uh, three sermons to be preached in this text, and we're going to try and go through all three of them, uh, giving much uh, emphasis to to the last of the three. Um, But It's amazing to see how Luke is communicating to Theophilus the the work of the gospel and the truth of the gospel in this text. And so, let's just jump in. Uh, Verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, and we learned about Apollos last week, and we learned that Apollos was in Corinth, he was preaching uh, boldly, but not the full gospel. Uh, And Priscilla and Aquila came and told him, you're not preaching the whole gospel. You're not preaching Jesus. And he's deeply stirred, and he moves, and he preaches the gospel. He repents, and, and he changes, and he preaches the gospel. And it just so happens, uh, which I love that statement anyway, uh, as though things just so happen. What we've been seeing throughout the entire book of Acts is that nothing just so happens, um, that the Lord ordains, and he, he plans, and he brings things together for his, his purpose. Nothing is coincidence, but nonetheless, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where Apollos is from. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, Let me just stop there and say that's a really unusual question to ask. Um, As we read the text, Luke just says they're disciples. And so we assume they're disciples of Jesus. But we know the answer to this question. If you believe, then yes, you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, The apostles affirm that over and over again. Scripture affirms that over and over again. So what's happened is Luke has given us probably the tail end of this conversation. And somewhere in this conversation that Paul has had with these disciples, somewhere in in his interactions with them, uh, their conversation, their articulation of their testimonies, Paul has realized that these men are not Christians at all. And so he asks them this very telling question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer goes to speak more to the truth of their state. Uh, they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so right away we see these men are disciples of somebody uh, but not Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus' teachings, you knew that he promised that the Comforter would come, that, there, that his Spirit, he would send them. Uh, he prayed that God would send his Spirit. He, you knew that when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit descended down on God's people. You would know that there's a Spirit, but they don't even know that there's a Spirit, or, or at least they don't know the Spirit has come. Uh, chances are, they do know that, that there's some sort of spirit of God. Uh, if they've read scripture, which we assume they do, um, because they, you know, Paul asked them, what were you baptized into? And they say, into John's baptism the baptism of John the Baptist. And so they know John the Baptist's teaching, and so they probably know Scripture, and so they probably know Genesis 1, where we hear that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Uh, they probably know the Psalms, where David asks God not to take his spirit from him, and Joel, where, where the Bible says that in the last days the Spirit of God will be poured out on his people, and his sons and daughters will prophesy. Or Ezekiel, where the Spirit of the Lord fills the people and turns, their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Uh, but these people say they don't, they don't know the Spirit. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus, which is what this is all about they don't know Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so what we see is that these people were disciples, but they were disciples of John the Baptist. They were baptized into John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. And yet, Even though they had repented, they needed the gospel. Because they only had half of the gospel. They had repentance, but they didn't turn to Jesus. They were living in the old covenant. They were living in a covenant where you repented a lot. And where you were washed and baptized and ritually cleansed a lot. But they didn't know Jesus. And it makes you think of, of Hebrews. It makes me think of Hebrews. Um, and the author of Hebrews, who may be Paul, um, sounds a lot like Paul, says a lot of the same things that Paul said, uh, but doesn't say he's Paul, and so we can't say he's Paul, um, but he might be Paul. Uh, the author of the Hebrews says in, in, in the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 uh, that, that the, the, the recipients of his letter— Ought to be teachers of the word. They ought to be teachers. But instead, they need him to feed them, they need him to teach them the fundamental elementary doctrine, the elementary teachings of the faith. And he warns them that it's about Jesus. And he warns them not to go back to the old way of doing things, not to lay again a foundation of repentance to dead works, and of ritual cleansings and washing but rather to turn to Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And these men, through their testimony and through their interaction with Paul, showed that they were trusting in their baptism, their association with John, and their own self-repentance, and not Jesus. And the, the heartbreaking thing is that as we look at the church today, um, the church in general, and also this church, and we have conversations with people in this church You realize that you can talk to somebody for a half an hour, an hour, about their story, about their testimony, and not once in that time do they mention Jesus. It's, I I learned I was doing wrong, and I wanted to turn to God, and so I turned to God. They don't mention Jesus. Listen to me if your testimony doesn't include Jesus, you're not a believer. Jesus is the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here to them. Look, you've missed it. You can repent. You can turn away from your wicked deeds. You can do all of these things. But if you don't have Jesus, you have missed it. He is not peripheral, He is not uh, some side benefit of the gospel. Christ is the gospel. When you articulate the gospel, where does Jesus find His place? Is He center? These men, though, before Paul came to them, were following John. They were living in the Old Covenant, but they didn't know Jesus. Paul proclaims Jesus to them. They believe, they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. And with that, I want to make two small caveats. The first is this. A lot of people use this passage to say that if you are a Christian, then you must speak in tongues. that's, That's not at all what's going on here. Uh, There's a pattern in the book of Acts where when uh, a people group or a significant amount of people pass from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant or enter into the New Covenant for the first time, they receive the Spirit in mighty ways as evidence of that, and they speak in tongues. So in Jerusalem, they receive the Spirit. They move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. They speak in tongues. To the Samaritans, they receive the Spirit uh, because they move from Old Covenant into New Covenant and and they speak in tongues. And then to the Gentiles. They receive the new covenant for the first time. It's a large group of people, and to prove the presence of the Holy Spirit and entrance into the new covenant, they speak in tongues. And here is the exact same pattern. They've moved from the old covenant into the new covenant. To prove that, to signify who the Holy Spirit is, these people begin to speak in tongues. Do you have to speak in tongues to be saved? No. We know that because throughout the rest of the Book of Acts, there are so many examples of people who believe in Jesus who receive the Spirit and don't speak in tongues. Uh, And the second one is this: a lot of people use this passage uh, to try or or as an argument against infant baptism. Uh, and regardless of your stance on infant baptism, as a church, we don't practice infant baptism. We affirm believer's baptism. Uh, this is not uh, a good argument against infant baptism because what Paul is saying is not that these men were baptized into the Christian baptism and that because they didn't receive the Spirit or because they weren't believers, they had to be rebaptized. They weren't baptized into the, Christ- into the, into the new covenant at all. It was a ritual washing they got. John's baptism was not the baptism of Christ. It wasn't baptism into the covenant community of Christ. It wasn't baptism into the Spirit. It was a ritual washing of repentance meant to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Christ. And so this was not a Christian baptism that they were baptized out of into a new Christian baptism upon their belief. And so if you use this... That, that's not what it's about, and that's not the point of this text anyway. The point is that they were depending on their own works and their repentance to save them and not on the work of Christ. But the Spirit moves in them, they speak in tongues, they believe, they're baptized. There were 12 men in all. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way is the gospel. The gospel is Christ. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. uh, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And I'm going to pause here for a second and make a couple uh, notes, a couple uh, words for you to consider. Um, Paul spent three months preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And at the end of the three months, all that he had to show for it were some angry people. and He left. Now, if you know Paul, you know that this would have affected him. Uh, in the sense that he would have been very tempted to consider this as failure, just like we are very tempted to consider some things failure that are are not. Uh, But he doesn't. He moves on. God uses this as as an experience to move him on to the next place. Uh, Sometimes you will invest your life in people. You will pour your life into people, and the Spirit will not move in them, and it will seem like failure, but it is not. Some failure is given by God to move you to where you need to be. And in that, it is not failure at all. And we see that he goes where he needs to be. He moves from the synagogue, the religious place, to the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, hall, uh, the, the it, it's, uh, Greek word is schola. It's where we kind of get scholarship, scholastic. Uh, it's, it's a place of learning. It might have been a lecture hall. It might have been a school. Uh, but, but Paul, they moved to this lecture hall, um, and it's the, the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't really know who he is. He may have been the person who funded it, or he might have been a prominent philosopher. Uh, But nonetheless, they move there. Uh, They are reasoning daily in this hall. And there's a textual uh, tradition that we don't have here uh, that says that they reasoned daily from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Every day. When people were resting from their work, most people would go and take naps. Uh, Paul and his disciples, as well as other people from from the community, from the city, would come. And for five hours a day, they would wrestle with, they would grapple with the gospel and with Jesus. Um, How much time are you spending (laughs) sharing the gospel? How much work and effort are you putting into it? Ultimately, it's not about us. It's about the spirit moving. But Paul works hard. That's hard work. Paul probably did his day job making tents. And then in, in his afternoon time of rest, rather than resting, he counted it more valuable to go to the hall of tyrannism for five hours to talk gospel with people. How many of you have spent two hours in the last month sharing the gospel? I stand convicted of this. Paul worked hard. And the Spirit blessed that. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul. God has been doing extraordinary miracles throughout the book of Acts, and Luke hasn't seemed uh, to deem it necessary to call them extraordinary. This, is, this time he says, these are extraordinary miracles, and they are. Look at what's happening. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The spirit is moving. And when the spirit moves like that, when the spirit is moving in, in 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 God's people in such a way that people are being healed and evil, even even cloth and towels and handkerchiefs that people are touching um, are 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 healing people and and relieving them of evil spirits. People find out about it. Word of that spreads, and word spreads, and 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 there are some itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. All right, and so itinerant uh, Jewish exorcist, it sounds uh, just like what it is. Uh, these are people who, for a living, went around attempting to exorcise demons. Apparently, they were not very good at it, um, because there were still a lot of demons <laughs> for Paul's handkerchief and apron to exercise. And when a piece of cloth is doing a better job of what you're doing than you are, it might be time to find a new profession. I'm just saying. Um, uh, and so they see, hey, look, these guys are having pretty good success. I mean, even cloth that they touch are, are exercising demons. Uh, let's, let's do it. What are they saying? What are they doing? Let's copy it. And so they evoke the name of Jesus, and they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I think it goes without saying that if you get beat to the point of naked, you're also wounded, um, and more than just physically. You know, uh, I mean, this is, this is embarrassing. <laughs> It just, it makes me think of like a, a, a Bruce Lee movie where it's Bruce Lee and like 30 guys and he's got his little white tank on and he just goes nuts. But, you know, even in those Bruce Lee movies, there's never a point where he beats them naked. Um, and so this, this may be the worst beating of, of all time. Um, but what, what went wrong? Seriously, what, what went wrong here? Well, let's, let's consider that. Um, because there, there are things for us here. Uh, the first thing that went wrong was these men were exorcists for trade and so they were using the name of Jesus to make money. They were using the name of Christ for profit. Never, ever, ever attempt to use the name of Jesus for profit. I promise you he doesn't like it. It's not good. But I mean we do all the time. Have you been to a Christian bookstore lately? And I'm not saying they're bad things, but there are some pretty bad things there too. You have to be very careful in profiting on the name of our Lord Jesus. But more than that, listen to what the men say. (laughs) I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They didn't believe in that Jesus. They didn't even really believe in that, Paul. They were using the proclamation of Jesus as if it were a magic spell that when you said it would cast out demons. And that's not how it works. There is no magic potion. There is no magic word. There's no prayer that if you just repeat it every day for enough time that the Lord will bless you indeed. We don't believe in magic spells. Except that sometimes that's exactly what we teach. We need to be careful of it. Especially since uh, the the revivals in the United States. Uh, There has been this very wrong, very um, dangerous belief that somehow if you will just pray a specific prayer in the right way that Jesus will save you and we turn this prayer into some magic spell that God is obligated to, <laughs> to agree to, or, or <laughs> he's obligated to us now to save us. And, and to be honest, uh, the Lord convicted, of, convicted me of this uh, a while ago. I was in Scotland, and, and it's probably one of the most important things that happened to me. It's also one of the most embarrassing and hurtful things that happened to me. I was in Scotland I was in a cafe, and we were there uh, on a mission trip, and we were sharing the gospel with people. And these four uh, kids came. Uh, They were a little bit older teenagers, um, maybe closer to what we would call college days. I don't know. And they came, and we talked, and we talked for a long time. And at the end of our conversation about sin and hell and, and Jesus, I told them, look, if you will just repeat this prayer after me, you will be saved. And on top of that, you cannot lose your salvation. And they did. And I said a line, and they repeated a line. I said another line, they repeated a line. And I felt good because I had led four people to Jesus. And I went, and I was talking to somebody else who was on the team with us. And as I was, I saw them, and they had met a friend of theirs, and they were walking out, and they were standing in the door of this cafe, and they were talking. And One of them said, yeah, that guy told us that if we just pray this prayer, we can do whatever we want, and God has to save us. We get to go to heaven. And that, to this day, is one of the biggest punches in the stomach um, that I've ever received, because look, that's what I communicated. And sometimes that's what we communicate. If you will just kneel here at this altar and pray this prayer, then you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is faith in Jesus. Not a magic spell that you pray. Now look, some of you prayed a prayer, and it, it was true. And it was the prayer was not what saved you, but it was indicative of a turning towards Jesus in your heart that, that saved. The grace of Jesus that saved you and manifested itself in your faith in turning to Jesus manifested itself in a prayer. But the prayer did not save you. And some of you, your testimony does not involve a prayer. It doesn't even involve an exact moment where you realize that you were sinful and you turned. And you know what? You believe that Jesus is your only hope for salvation and you are saved. We're not, we're not a cult. We're not a group of magicians. We don't believe in spells and incantations that will somehow obligate God to our ends. These men did, and they got they got beat pretty bad for it. Also, from this text, we need to realize that the spirit realm is very, very real. This is something that I struggle with um, in my enlightened, philosophized Western mind. It's very scientific. It's hard for me to think. Yeah, there. You know, I hear somebody say, yeah, a demon tempted me, and I think, no, that was your own heart. Could have been either. But I'm so quick to dismiss the spiritual. Uh, But Luke is writing this to Theophilus, and it's not an allegory that he's writing. He's writing an account of what happened, and the spirit realm is real. There are demons, and let me tell you, demons are powerful, more powerful even than you. Not more powerful than the one who was in you. But do not, do not attempt to flirt with, to mess with, to interact with the demonic and the spiritual. I mean, we've seen it before. That woman who who was possessed by demons but still proclaiming that, hey, these guys are telling the truth of the gospel. Paul gets irritated and says, demon, get out of her. We can have no part with you. We can have no part with the demonic. We must be aware of the spiritual. And these spirits, these demons, in this man embarrass uh, these itinerant Jewish exorcists. And word gets out about it. Which, I mean, honestly, that would happen today too. Demon or not, uh, if in Anger, seven men got beaten naked by one man in a house, we'd hear about it. It'd be, it'd be on the news. People would be talking about it. There'd be some viral video um, commenting on it. I don't, I don't know. We'd, we'd know. And it's no different then. Uh, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, So the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily and prevail. Why do they burn these books? Because of what we just said. There's no, you cannot mess around. There's no place for us to mess with, to dabble in the demonic. It may seem like a game, but it's not. Oh, it's just fun. Uh, They're just going to read my palm. It's not, it's just a movie. Except that there's more. There is the spiritual. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours, Uh, may come into disrepute, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for all the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said this, he dismissed the assembly. A lot when when we went to Haiti um one of the afternoons there uh, we had bought a lot of food a lot of rice and a lot of beans and we had bagged them up individually and put them in a wheelbarrow and we were going to go out and uh we're going to give food away. And Willio, the pastor who was with us, uh, set up shop and he began to preach. And he preached the gospel. Uh, it was in Creole, so I don't really know what he was saying. But based on what he told us later, uh, he, was, he was saying more or less that, that God is their hope. And that Jesus is their hope. And that this food that, that's here... Uh, is not from these Americans or from us, but from God, and somewhere around the point when he said, Food here, the people who who are starving began to rush the wheelbarrow seriously and and it was it was crazy, like just ripping at bags, grabbing at food. Bags are ripping, rice and beans are going everywhere. People are running. Um, it was definitely the, the scariest point of any trip that I've been on just because of the lack of control that was going on. It's also the closest that I've ever been to a riot, um, and, and it was nothing compared to what's going on here. In a lot of ways. First of all, the people were rushing and rioting, um, not because of what was being said, but because there was food and they were hungry. And secondly, there there really wasn't as much danger um, as 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 we kind of felt at the moment. Um, but this this right here in, in in Ephesus in, in Acts is is dangerous and people are mad and the question that we have to ask is why are they so mad what has caused them to riot and the reality is that they're rioting because the gospel that Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus challenges and confronts their idols and they realize that as this gospel advances it's a threat to their idols And so they riot. They riot because they are idolaters. And this section is why it was so hard for me to finish this sermon because I felt the Spirit of the Lord weighing on me and bearing down on me, calling me to repent of my idolatry and my idol worship um, and calling Me to call us as a church, as a people, to repent because the gospel is the enemy of all idols, and there are so many idols that we as a people make for ourselves. John Calvin said that our heart is a factory of idols, and it's true. And before we go any further, I'm going to give you a working definition of idols. Some of you may know it, and that's fine, but it's what we're going to look at. Um, an idol is not necessarily a bad thing. Like we, get, we get these ideas of idols, and they're like ugly totems and gargoyles that people bow down to, or it's like Baal, and like, you're thinking, well, nobody worships Baal anymore, and that's probably true, but that's not just what an idol is. Idols aren't just obviously bad things. Sometimes they're good things, and that's the definition that we're going to use. An idol is something good that you have elevated to God's status. Mark Driscoll has said that when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing, and that's absolutely right. Idols can be good things that God graciously gives us that we worship instead of him. And here in this text, I'm going to point out four of their idols. Four ways that they are worshiping idols. They are idolaters, and we're going to look at our own hearts. The first is religious idolatry. And we see it. Demetrius comes to them and he says, look, people aren't buying idols anymore. They're burning their books for witchcraft. We're, we're, we're worried because the thing that we sell them, idols, the gospel, Paul is saying, they're not even gods anyway. And all of a sudden, these, these, these other gods uh, that, that, that people have made for themselves uh, are being called out for what they are. They're idols. They're not Yahweh. They're not worthy of our glory and our worship. And look, these things start out, and they're not bad things. Gold, silver, wood, those aren't bad things. Cows, animals, people, again, not bad things. But when you take those good things, and, and you, like gold and silver, and you form them into other good things, like cows or people, and then you start to worship them, that's a bad thing. That's idolatry. Is gold and silver bad? No. Is creation bad? No. But when we put it in God's place, we've made it an idol. The second thing that we see them worshiping is a little bit uh, less subtle in our lives, but but probably more prevalent. Um, They worshiped money. I'm going to put it out there that Demetrius is not mad that people aren't worshiping gods anymore, as much as he is mad that it's going to take a significant chunk of their money. He even says it. Look, this trade, making idols, it's given us great wealth. That's in jeopardy. Money is not a bad thing. God graciously gives us money so that we can provide for our families, so that we can provide for the work of the kingdom, support missionaries, give to the church, use for the sake of the poor and for for others, so that the kingdom of God, so that the gospel of Jesus can be advanced. It's not a bad thing, but when we make it God, it is. It's an idol. And some of you worship money. How do you know that you worship money? When the vast, vast majority of your efforts, when your decisions are made not on the basis of whether God has called you to this, but on how it will affect your bank account. Will I make more money? Or conversely, is this keeping within my pattern for saving money? when those are the dominant thought processes in your your mind and in your heart, you are beginning to worship money. You cannot love money and love Jesus. You can have money and love Jesus, but you can't love it. And some of you love money. Money. Some of you spend most of your time worrying about where your money is going to come from. Look, you you may say that you hate it, but at the end of the day, some of you, some of us, (laughs) to include myself in this, some of us are most worried about where that money to pay that bill is going to come from. And and what what we are saying in our hearts is that money provides for me and money saves me, not Jesus, not God. And you've turned money into a functional savior and an idol. And if that's you, then you need to repent and trust Jesus. A third idol that we see here uh, is is city idolatry. We can call it nation idolatry, national idolatry. Look at what they start crying in verse 28. Uh, You don't have to go there, but just, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All of a sudden, this isn't about Artemis anymore. This isn't about money for some of these people. This is about Ephesus. It's about their city. It's about their national and city identity, and they worship it. And national idolatry is a huge problem. What has preeminence in your heart? The United States of America or the kingdom of God? It's easy to say the kingdom of God. Well, let's say this then. What brings you more comfort? The knowledge of the Spirit moving through the nations or the right person in office? What what grieves your heart more? Sin in your life or legislation or economic structures? Conservative Christians. (laughs) around this country, in this building, right now. We need to repent of national worship. We need to repent of holding up the salvation of the world as democratic capitalism and not Jesus Christ. And the reality is that if that kind of makes you turn in your stomach and gets you a little bit angry, then I'm talking to you. The United States of America will pass away, I promise. But the kingdom of God is forever. Worship God. Trust in Jesus. Not in this system or any system. Are you willing to, and this are you willing to fight with and disown Christian brothers because they're in a different political party than you? If so, right now, in your hearts, repent. And the fourth thing that they worship is society, other people. Some of these people, what gets them is that the gods are being called not gods. Some of these people, what gets them is the fact that, uh, the fact that, (laughs) <laughs> that the money that they make off of these gods, their money is being compromised. Some of these people, it's, it's nas- national and, and city-based. And look, let me tell you something. Cities and nations are good things that God has given us graciously. The United States of America is a good thing. We ought to be thankful for the freedom that we have in this country. We ought to be thankful for the system that we have that allows us to sit here right now without worrying that people will burst into the doors, and drag us off to jail. And at the same time, we ought to remember that people in China ought to be thankful for the system uh, that allows them to suffer well for the sake of Jesus. Nations are good things. But apart from that, some people are worshiping other people. Some of them, they don't even know why they're rioting. It's hilarious to me, you know, like they just see a commotion, loud noises, they just jump in and they're running, they don't know, people, it's it's like a basketball game, it's March, have to bring basketball into it, you know, like one of the weirdest things, I don't like the wave, I hate the wave, I think it's corny, however, if I'm in a stadium and I see the wave coming, I'm like, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is stupid, woo, like I have to do it. I have to, and then I dread, and it comes back around, and it repeats, because because I'm in this group of people, and I do not want to be that one guy who sits during the wave, and you all know that one guy, but this is what's going on. These people are more concerned with how they look to society than on the truth of what's going on, and some of us worship people. People are good things. We ought to love people. But when we love people more than Jesus, that's a bad thing. Within that, there are, there are, there are a few subcategories, like, like friends, friendship, or uh, friendship worship, where, where, where our worth is, Our value is determined not by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, but rather on how many friends we have or who our friends are. When we look and seek to impress our friends with the things that we do more than we seek to impress Yahweh. Also, there's relational worship, relationship worship. Uh, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whether it's a husband or a wife, uh, the tendency is to, uh, the the temptation is to worship that other person, that significant other, more than Christ. And that manifests itself, college students and, and those of you who are dating, that manifests itself in a lot of ways. It manifests itself in saying that enjoying this thing now is better than trusting in Jesus and better than the way that God has shown us. God has said sex before marriage is not permissible, but I enjoy this more than I enjoy obeying God. And in this time, I'm going to worship this person and not God. Husbands and wives, husbands, God has called you to be the head of your household. It would behoove you to do that lovingly and cautiously. However, how many times have you been sure that God is calling you and your family to something and you back off because you do not want to evoke the anger or disappointment of your wife? Wives are good things. Husbands are good things. But when they take the place of God, they become very bad things. Then ultimately, as parents, our families, we worship family. When the Spirit of the Lord moves in you and says, Give money to this cause, to this missionary, to the church, to these people who need it, uh, what is the first thought in your heart? Gladly, Lord, and I'll trust you to provide. Or is it, If I do this, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to send my kid to the college they want to go to. Or if I do this, we're going to have to eat rice and beans for weeks on end. How many of you feel God calling you to missions, foreign missions? And you say, if I go, what's it going to mean for my children? Or how are my relatives going to look at me? They're going to think I'm irresponsible. It's not safe there. We worship our families. We take a good thing and we make it our God. And if you do, then right now you need to repent. And all of these things finally point to uh, the, the most prevalent uh, form of idolatry. It's the one that's underneath all of them and it's self-idolatry. We are prone to worship ourselves. We have been since Adam and Eve decided that they were more to be desired. Their good, their wisdom, their status and way was better than God's. They elevated themselves to the place of God. And all of these things, that's what we're doing. I want this God says, no, my way is better. I have this. God says to forsake it. But if I forsake it, I'll have that empty feeling. I can't do it. So we say no. We worship ourselves instead of God. All of it, all sin. Whether it's, Sex outside of marriage, where we're just worshiping and, and fulfilling our own desires? Or wh- whether it's not paying our taxes like Jesus commands us to, because we worship our, our system of, of politics or our our own bank account and, and our desire to, to have all the money that we want. And the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that the apostles proclaim, the way. As Luke states it here, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we expose our idols and destroy them. The spirit of God, the gospel of God, it it seeks to destroy idols in our lives. And so at this point, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time and let the spirit work in us. I want you right now just to pray that the Spirit of God would open your eyes to the idols in your heart that he would confront you with them and that he would give you the grace to repent from those idols and turn to Jesus and so we're going to take some time in prayer whatever you need to do if you need to leave and go to another room and pray if you need to come up here it doesn't matter Just allow the Spirit to work in you.